You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. You're growing up in the late 90s, you'll remember a famous video game that was taking the world, well I should say maybe our country, by storm. This is before Call of Duty, this is before the Xbox, this is before Pokemon, there was a game called GoldenEye 007, it'll be up on the screen. If you don't know what this is, you don't know what you've missed, this was an epic video game that uh, most of us in our late 20s or early 30s remember. It was a Nintendo 64 game. Some of you probably don't know what that is or missed out on something, something legendary, but uh, this was a game based on the James Bond movie of the same title, GoldenEye. And the movie and the game both start with the same opening scene. In the game, you're playing as Pierce Brosnan's James Bond, and you're essentially on a secret mission to break into the Archangel secret, top secret Russian chemical weapons facility somewhere in Siberia. And uh, you find yourself kind of in the air ducts, in, in the ceiling, in the, in the, in the top of the, of the building. And all you have is this little PP7 with a silencer, which is a, a gun. And eventually you, you get out of the, uh, the ceiling, you get out of the the vents and the ducks, and just like in the movie, in this powerful opening scene in the movie, you meet Sean Bean's character, 006, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a setup, and eventually you, you shoot your way through the level, you blow some things up, just like the movie, and, and you fly out of there, and it's just a really powerful opening scene. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful opening level that really sets the, the stage, that really sets the the context of both the movie and the game. Now in film and in movies, that's called an opening sequence or, or a prologue. And the best movies and the best books usually have them. It brings you into the story. A prologue or an opening scene or an opening sequence sets the context. It sets the story and it brings you into its universe. It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were, given, three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners, and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. A great prologue, a great opening scene. Let me be a little bit more creative. I didn't, I didn't hear a lot of, of laughs from our ladies, so let me just give one that might draw in some of the ladies this morning, something a little bit more, more up your alley. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their, their first victory against the evil galactic empire. You know what that is. Good opening scenes, good opening sequences, good prologues make good movies. They make good books, books that we remember because they bring us into the story. They set the context, they set the stage. It previews what's going to happen. It introduces you to the characters. It introduces you to the story. This morning, we're starting a very long journey in the Gospel of John. And when I say a long journey, I'm thinking sometime around Thanksgiving, we're hoping to be done. Not, not that we're going to be here till Thanksgiving, but every Sunday we'll be looking at the Gospel of John, hoping to finish around then. But you'll notice that this morning, 
uh, the text we just read, it starts with a powerful prologue. It starts with, with an opening sequence that sets the stage, that previews what's going to happen, that introduces us to the context. And what we'll see described here in this prologue this morning, what we'll see described here in this, this, opening, this opening sequence is the answer to the most important question of our lives. And what is that? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? John's prologue, his opening to, to his, his book, this, this opening sequence, is going to tell us exactly who Jesus Christ is. And over the next year or so, as we live in this gospel, as we hear the teachings of Jesus, as we hear the words of Jesus, as we listen to Jesus speak, as we see Jesus heal, as we see him perform miracles, all of that, all of these things are going to point us to one thing, to himself, to who he is and what he has done for us. It's all going to be summarized and concluded right here, however, in our opening scene, in our opening prologue to this gospel. If you're new here this morning or you've been checking out Christianity, this is a great book for you to begin thinking about and dwelling on. And if you've been here for a while, or you've been following Jesus for a while, this is also a great book for you to begin thinking about and dwelling on and looking into. We live in a world today where many people have no idea what their purpose is anymore. We live in a country that's so divided that it sometimes feels like we don't even share the same story or the same history anymore, the same heroes, the same facts. But John is going to show us that there is really only one story that matters. There's really only one hero who matters. Jesus Christ, the hero that will not just inspire you this morning and through our study of John, but a hero who can change your life, who can transform your heart, who can give you a purpose, who can, in, who can show you the story of the true world. My main idea is going to be up on the screen, and it's going to be quite simple, and it's this. God has come to us in Jesus Christ. God has come to us in Jesus Christ. And by receiving him, by believing on his name this morning, you can have life and you can have light. My points are also going to be up on the screen this morning. And as we look at this prologue, this, this opening sequence, we're going to see these things kind of come alive to us as we study John. Number one, who is the word? We'll see that in the first five verses. Rejectors and receivers of the word, we're going to see that in verse 6 through 13. And then finally, knowing the word, we're going to see that in verses 14 through 18. Let's dive in. The passage begins, we really see our first point, who is the word, in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the prologue begins, and we're introduced to something that's a little bit complex. In the beginning, there's something called the Word, and the Word is with God, but the Word also is God. Distinct, but also the same. He's there before the beginning. Everything was made through him. And in the Word, there's also life. And that life is light, a light that cannot be overcome. Now, John is going to tell us that the word, that this word, who is the Son of God, 
will become Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the word became flesh. Christmas, we just celebrated that. And the rest of the New Testament over and over again is going to tell us that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. But what's interesting here is that John doesn't say in the beginning was the Son of God, and the Son of God was with God, and the Son of God was God. He doesn't say here in the beginning was the second member of the Trinity, and the second member of the Trinity was with God, and the second member of the Trinity was God. Instead, he uses a very interesting word. He uses this Greek word logos, which we translate into the word word. He says, in the beginning was the logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. John is being very, very deliberate here. And as we study John, we're going to see that he is very, very deliberate with his words. He uses words that are simple, but he also uses words, those same words that have a deeper meaning. St. Augustine once said of John's gospel that it's shallow enough for a child not to drown in, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. We're going to find he's very basic but he's also really, really deep. And we see that right out of the gates here. He uses this word logos to describe the Son of God. God before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now, brace yourselves. A little bit of a history lesson. Logos is a Greek concept. It's a philosophical concept. Logos is basically the idea that there's some type of principle. There's some type of structure. There's some type of order behind the universe. There's a, there's a science. There's a, there's a logic behind everything. We still use this word, lo, logi, from logos at the ends of our, our words today, many words today, particularly words that have to do with, with fields of study. For instance, if you study pathology, you're learning the principle, the structure, the science behind, behind diseases and, and their causes. Or if you study biology, that word logi there at the end, you're learning the principle, you're learning the structure, you're learning the science the, the order behind living things. Uh, back then to know, to the Greeks, back then to know the logos of something meant that you knew what its reason was. You knew what its purpose was. You knew what its, its function was. Uh, for them, if you didn't know the logos of something, you would end up misusing it. You would, you would end up experiencing frustration. You would, you would experience pain. You would experience decay. For the longest time, I've, I've shared this story with a, a few friends before, but for the longest time, I didn't own a hammer. Uh, actually, throughout my 20s, I've, I've, I never owned a hammer. I just, I never got one. And so the, the question emerges, how do you assemble chairs? How do you, how do you uh, put up pictures in your house? How do, you, how do you fix things? Well, for the longest time, I would just take anything I could find around the house, whether it was a Coke can or the back of a drill, uh, staplers, whatever it was, and, and just kind of boom, boom, boom. And it was, it was my way of kind of hammering things into the wall to, to fix things and put, put, put pictures and, and photos up. It was, it was frustrating, the point is. It was painful. The Coke can and the, and the, and the drills and the scissors and, and the staplers, they experienced decay. Their, their logos, we might say, is not to be a, a bashing tool. Their purpose, their principle, their function, their essence is, is not to be a hammer. And so for the Greeks, it was important to know the logos of reality. If they didn't know the logos, they thought they, they would misuse their lives. They, they thought that they, they would experience frustration. They thought that they would experience pain. They would experience decay. They believed that there was this impersonal 
principle, this structure, this order behind the universe. And the goal of the Greeks was aligning their lives with these principles, aligning their lives with these structures, aligning their lives to the logos. Now the problem emerges, they couldn't agree on what the logos was. I mean, who, who, who could imagine that, that people would disagree on the meaning of life? And so the Stoics come along and, and essentially say that to align your life with the Logos means you learn to accept everything that happens. Everything. So you toughen up. You accept it. You align your life with the rules and the principles of reality. Someone dies, that's no fun, but it's part of life. You in pain, sorry, don't let that get to you. It's part of life. They thought, accept everything that happens with strength. That's how you align your life with the Logos. But then come the Epicureans, the opposite. And they say, essentially, to align your life with the Logos is to find out what makes you happy and do it. The impersonal, the, the, the structure, the principle, the order behind the universe is basically have a good time. Have a good time. And so you had these, these warring thoughts of what is the Logos? But everyone thought there's some type of impersonal structure. There's order behind reality and behind things. And it's important to know what, what the logos of a thing is and what the logos of life is. But then comes John. And John uses this term, but he tells us its full meaning. And by using it, he is essentially saying, hey, guys, hey, gals, you sense there is an order to life. You sense that there is a structure. There is a there's an order, a science behind things, behind life. You're on to something. But he says, let me tell you what the Logos really is. Let me tell you what the Logos really is. And John says, it's not something impersonal. It's not something abstract. He says, the Logos is actually a person, a person who loves you, who can be personal to you. And in order to figure out life, you have to align yourself not with principles, but with this person. You have to be in connection to this person, in relationship with this person to God himself. And it's at this point that the world begins to change. This eventually sweeps the Roman Empire, Christianity, the truth that you can know God and you can be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ, the Logos, that you can know your purpose, that you can know your design, that you can know the good life by knowing him. And that's true even this morning. In the very first verse of John, we see the amazing truth that you can know God. Your life can be aligned with the, the, the God who loves you, who unlike the Stoics doesn't just sit unemotionally back and accept the things that have happened to you and accept the things that you have done, but he's reached down into history to save you, to redeem you, to die for you, to change you, to give you life in him, if you'll call on the name of the Lord. Now, John also has another thing in mind that he's doing here when he uses this word logos. He's not only saying that the logos is a person who's behind all the structure and the order of reality, God, but he's also saying this person was with God and is God at the creation, at the beginning of all things. He's, he's connecting our minds to think about the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1.1, you have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to picture God speaking. God speaking his word that creates everything. He speaks and it happens. He says, let there be light. 
and there's light. And John says, essentially, let me tell you more. He says, in Genesis, you see God, but you also see his word. He says, the fuller picture is that that word, he's a person. He's the logos. He's a person who was with God and is God. He says, think about it. God's word is a perfect self-expression of himself. His word is all-powerful. His word is all-knowing. His word is all-present. And therefore, his word must necessarily be God. He shares all the attributes of God necessarily, but mysteriously, he's distinct from God. And this, of course, is where we start to see the building blocks of the concept of the Trinity, that there's one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this all over the Gospel of John as we hear Jesus who says things like, I and the Father are one, and says things like, to see me is to see the Father. What John's saying here is that the Logos, this, this Word of God who becomes Jesus Christ, is fully God, totally divine. He's the perfect self-expression of the eternal God, and he was with God and is God at the beginning of it all. He says, when you think about the uncaused cause, who is a necessary force for this universe to come into existence because matter is not eternal. Something just didn't come from nothing. He says, when you think about the uncaused cause, who is God? Who's behind all of this? Know that it's this God who entered into our world as Jesus Christ. He continues and he says, in this logos, in this word is something really, really important for us all. Life and light, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or mastered it. John says that in Jesus there is life, and that is light. These are going to be important words in the Gospel of John, but he really summarizes the entire message of the Bible, the entire message of the Gospel right here, which is this, that in Jesus Christ there is salvation. In Genesis there was a tree. It was in the center of the garden, and that tree represented life and light. But the story is, is we've been kicked out of the garden. But the good news of the gospel is that God is not done with us. In John, we'll see that God himself will die on another tree. And from that tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, there is life and there is light. If you put that tree in the center of your life, you will have light and you will have life. And this morning, in Jesus Christ, again, there is hope for you. There is life for you. It's better than anything you could imagine. There's a light in him that can break through any darkness in your life, in your past, in your present, in your future. In Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for you this morning, for everything. And there's a future in him if you'll trust him, a resurrection in him, light and life. Trust him this morning. The prologue continues, this opening sequence continues, and this really leads us to our second point. Rejectors and receivers of the word. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John's going to introduce us to another John. This is not the writer of the gospel, but a different John. His denomination, we might say, is a little bit of a secret here. We're going to find out a little bit more about uh, his background next week. But right here is John the witness. He's a bit of a miracle child. 
He's filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's, he's born. And his mission is the same mission of every Christian, to be a witness, to testify with your words and your actions that Jesus is the life, that Jesus is the light. Verse 9, John, the writer, continues. Looking back, he's going to tell us there were really two responses to this light. As he looks back at the gospel, as he thinks about the coming of the Logos, the coming of of God into the world, he says there's really two responses to Jesus when he came into the world, those who rejected him and those who received him. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says essentially there's two responses. There were either rejecters of the light or receivers of the light. He groups the mass of humanity not by IQ, not by race, not by politics, not by nationality, not by gender, but by what they do with Jesus Christ, by how they respond to the light. And it's the same for us this morning. The most important question of our lives is who is Jesus Christ? What will you do with Jesus Christ? How will you respond to this light? We're either rejectors or receivers. Notice first these rejectors. God made the world. There's traces of God all over it. And yet when he comes into the world, they don't recognize him. He even goes to his own people. He goes to Israel, who he had been preparing for centuries through pictures, through object lessons, through scripture to know him, and they mostly reject him. Jesus was basically not what they hoped for. They wanted a Messiah on their own terms, we read. They wanted a God they can control, who would validate all their own opinions, who would never contradict them, who would immerse himself in the politics of the day, who would give them all their dreams. But Jesus' message is not that. He comes on the scene and he says, repent, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, weakness is strength, humility is power, dying is living, money is not king, sin is real, you're not the star of the show, pick up your cross and follow me. And a lot of people can't receive that. And a lot of people can't receive that today. But notice there's the receivers. There's the receivers. There were some who had a breakthrough, who by the power of God's spirit, they received Jesus Christ. They put their faith in him. And the outcome was, verse 12 and verse 13, they were given the right to become children of God. How? Well, through some type of spiritual rebirth. We'll read more about that as we study John. And the same is true today. If you've received Jesus Christ, he's come into your life by his spirit. And he's made you something that you're not. He's made you a child of God. Now, in some sense, this morning, we could say everybody's a child of God. All the earth is children of God. But what John is talking about here is that to truly receive Jesus into your life means that you really do become a child of God. You receive a new kind of birth, a spiritual rebirth. This is revolutionary. It's talking about the fact that we get a relationship with God as Father. Our Muslim friends believe there are 99 unique names that have been revealed for God. And each of those names describes a certain aspect of, of the creator. And Allah, of course, is the first name, but you also have names like 
the most gracious, the most merciful, sovereign, the most holy, and names like that. 99 distinct names, they would say, have been revealed about God. But there's this ancient riddle that says the hundredth name is unknown. And it centers around a camel. And the riddle is about essentially, why does the camel look down on us? Why does this camel with this ugly smirk look so big and so arrogant and it, and it looks down on us? And the riddle goes, why does the camel smile? And the answer is because only he knows the hundredth name of God. But as a Christian this morning, we say, actually, the name you're missing is known to Jesus Christ. And that name is Father. To be a Christian means you know God fully and finally as your Father. And that means this morning you have access to Him. It means this morning you have security through Him. It means this morning you have an inheritance in Him. To receive Him, to believe in His name, to have a breakthrough, means that you trust your whole life upon Jesus Christ. And it means that God, by His Spirit, comes into your life and He makes you a son or a daughter of Himself. You become a true child of God. And to be a child of God means you have access to Him. It means you have security in Him. It means you have inheritance through Him. You know Him as Father. What you do with Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. The passage continues, and we see our third and final point, knowing the Word. Knowing the Word. John's going to tell us that he's, he's been a receiver, not a rejecter. He tells us who Jesus is clearly, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Lucy and the Narnia books saying, in our world too, a stable once had something in it that was bigger than the whole world. This is deity taking on humanity. God not subtracting his divinity, but adding on humanity. The word, the logos, God becoming man in Jesus Christ. John says this is who Jesus Christ is. He's God come to us. He's God come to you and I. And he says we have seen his glory, a glory full of grace and truth. He says he's experienced him. He says we've looked upon Jesus and we've seen his glory. We've seen a glory that is full of grace and truth. And you might ask yourself, was it the miracles he did? Was it his words? And the answer is no, not primarily, because a lot of people saw him do miracles. A lot of people heard his words. A lot of people heard his teachings. But when they looked at him, they didn't see glory. They didn't see a glory filled with grace in truth. So then what was it primarily? Well, it was because his eyes were opened. And looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, he could see the glory of God, the truth of God. And this morning, it's the same for us. All the miracles, all the words, all the principles, all of that is to point us to who he is. And who he is, is the God who has loved us and has gave himself for us. The God who has died on a cross and rose in power to give us life. The God that if you'll receive this morning, if you'll believe, he'll give you his spirit. He'll open your eyes to see him for who he really is. He closes in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks after me before me because he was before me. In other words, he's saying, Jesus was born after me on the human side of things, but actually he's before me. Why? Because he's the great I am. He never had a beginning. 
He's the uncaused cause. He's God in the flesh. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In the 1700s, there was a boy born into a Christian home. And for the first six or seven years of his life, he heard the gospel. He was loved by his parents. And they both eventually tragically died, and he has to go live with his relatives. And at his relatives' house, they kind of mock his faith. They mistreat him. And so this boy runs away, and he eventually joins the Royal Navy. And his life starts to go way, way, way downhill. A couple years later, he leaves the Navy, and he goes to Africa. And he joins a Portuguese slave trader. And there things start to get really, really bad for him. At times, he has to actually eat scraps off the floor. He ends up getting out of that, but he joins another slave trader, and this time he becomes the first officer of his ship. And things get even worse and worse for him. He descends even more into sin, into depravity. And finally, there's this moment. He's off the coast of, of Scotland in a ship, and it's, it's a really bad storm. And he's starting to think about some of these passages that he heard as a kid. Passages like, like this one that talk about God's grace. And in that moment, God saves him and he trusts in Jesus for real. And the new life and, and the light that he receives is reflected in these famous words that we all know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Of course, that guy was John Newton, who becomes one of the greatest preachers and friends of supporters of guys like William Wilberforce, who becomes a powerful Christian abolitionist. The point is, God's grace comes to us this morning in himself. It comes to us in Jesus Christ. John had certainly experienced that. John the witness certainly experienced that. And John Newton, this depraved slave trader, certainly experienced that too. And this morning, so can you and I. God has written himself into the history of this world. And this morning, just like yesterday, just like today, and just like forever, he welcomes you to know him, to trust him, to believe on him. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.